Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. just checking in podcast i hope you all had a enjoyable and restful christmas this podcast as always is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about their mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i am your host freddie cocker each pod i check in with a very special guest we have an atta and chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we discuss it Before I introduce the guest, I just want to say, if you haven't got your tickets for the next Just Checking In Live, please, please do. They are on sale now. It is on January the 29th. It is at The Birds in Leytonstone in North East London. Please bring all your friends, bring your family. I want to see as many podcast guests and many supporters event there as possible. The last one I did was in June 2019, so it will be almost three years, basically, since I did the last one. The link for it is on our channels in our link tree. If you don't know how to get there, I will put a link to it in the show notes. Please go and buy one. It'll really, really mean a lot to me to see all of you there. And yeah, I'll just really appreciate everyone coming. Hopefully we can sell it out. The band is absolutely great. They're called Isla Rico. Got a DJ called DJ Pete Anderson. He's played in Rayowa. He's played in Beach for Tiger. He also plays in a few other bands. So yeah, please come along. It'll be really, really great. Just checking in live number three. Now on to the guest for today's show. I was scrolling through social media one day when I came across a podcast whose title was literally the end of every single text message I sent to most people till around 2019. The title was No Worries If Not. As a recovering people pleaser, the term spoke to every sinew of the people pleasing I had done for 20 plus years. So in this episode, I'm speaking to one of its hosts, Rhea Wollstenholme. Rhea, alongside her co-host Georgia, don't just discuss mental health on the show, but also culture, relationships, and is a podcast for the anxiously ambitious, as they put it. Rhea is a journalist by profession, and she's just switched into the PR industry. And in this episode, we discuss her journalism journey, being chucked in at the deep end at the industry through her university degree, and how that toughened her up and cemented her desire to pursue it as a career. We discuss dealing with rejection, the London-centric bias within the industry, and how she lost out on opportunities early on because she lived in Jersey at the time, and how that plays into access in journalism. We also talk about the podcast, how it allows her and George to have conversations they might not otherwise have had, and in bringing their WhatsApp group chat to life. For Rhea's mental health, we discuss her experience of anxiety from an early age, the impact that her parents' divorce had on her as a teenager, attachment issues she has tried to work through, and independence as an adult. We finish by talking about Rhea's endometriosis, a hugely stigmatised health condition which affects women, specifically female fertility. I'm very grateful to Rhea for opening up about this final topic as it's something I know a lot of women experience. It's been a hugely educational thing for me to learn about and I've also learned that it can be a hugely traumatic thing to go through, particularly if it results in invasive surgery. So this is how my check-in with Rhea Wilson-Home went. Rhea Wilson-Home, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on and taking the time out of your Christmas break to record with me. No problem. Um, I hope you're enjoying a well-earned rest in Jersey where you're recording this from. So how was your Christmas break and how are you doing? So good. I'm very lucky I got out of London just before everyone 
and their <laughs> mother got COVID, it seems. Feeling very sorry for everyone that didn't get to see their families. But yes, had a lovely, lovely time. Get to actually spend some downtime with them, which has been very, very needed. Lovely. And you've just moved into the PR world. So what mm. has that been like so far? Because we're going to talk about journalism and a lot of that, which was your previous career. Mm. So how has kind of PR life been so far? You know what? It's been the most fun month I've ever had at work. It's just a whole new world with some brand new people. And it was just definitely a time for change. It's been a a very welcome change as well. Something that I've been kind of looking into for a while, to be honest. I always thought I'd end up here and here we are. Okay. I'm very grateful to you, Ria, for the issues we're going to discuss because they've been quite eye-opening for me. It's been quite an educational experience for me, as I said in the intro. And I know it will help a lot of my female listeners and I guess educate a lot of male listeners who might have partners, who might have anyone female in their life who might live with the condition that you live with, aside from all the other issues we're going to discuss. So without further ado, shall we start the show? Yes, let's go for it. Like we just said just now, Ria, you are now in PR, but you started by going into journalism. So let's talk about journalism first. Tell the listeners why you first got into journalism, why you felt inspired to be one, and I guess where your love for writing or maybe storytelling started. Oh, that's a that's a good one. So storytelling, I think, is the key word that I was always a big English nerd at school. That was definitely my favourite subject from very young. I used to write stories in journals and diaries. And I guess from there that progressed. And I was always kind of like, you know, top of my class in that. And when it came to deciding what to do later on in life, when uni started coming up around the end of sixth form, I had no idea you could study journalism as a subject. I always thought it was something people ended up in because it's no secret that in the journalism industry, it's who you know Mm -hmm. a lot of the time. So a lot of people will go off and do history or English and then find their way working to a newspaper. But I wanted to go straight in. So I studied multimedia journalism and I absolutely loved it. It was just this whole new world of combining my love for English and creativity, but actually making something that was important for people and doing it factually and correctly and yeah it was amazing Mm. it was something that I I didn't really think I'd get into it's such a competitive field to be kind of breaking into especially when you come from somewhere like Jersey you know we've got very limited resources when it comes to radio and tv and it was always like the big dream being able to write and be paid for it and I'm very lucky that I got to experience Mm. that you did your journalism degree at Bournemouth University which I'm slightly jealous Mm. of because Bournemouth University has a (laughs) sand beach and I went to Sussex and Brighton has a pebble beach which I often say people you might know even you might as well not even have a beach so um you were, yeah. I was a bit jealous there. Bournemouth is one of a group of unis who offer multimedia journalism as an undergraduate course. Now as you yes. navigated the course you realized that mm. whilst a lot of your peers were naturally sort of breezing through freshers with not too much hassle you were very much chucked in at the deep end. So can you tell me what that mm. experience was like and the challenges that presented? Well, yeah, I think anyone who potentially I went to uni with that's listening to this will agree that the first year of our course truly was a baptism of fire. It was, again, people coming from all kinds of areas, having loved either writing or wanting to get into TV or presenting. We all had different goals and ambitions, but we had to do the same thing to get past the first hurdle. And it just seemed like when all my mates were partying, I was writing coursework and we had an obscene amount of exams in first year and it was just very very intense there was a lot of times where you know tears on the phone to mum and dad like I can't do this I'm not good enough to be here there's no way I can get past this first year and I really did scrape my first year I found it so so difficult 
it was definitely a lesson in perseverance and a bit of the way you talk to yourself is important because if I kept telling myself I couldn't do it I wouldn't have done Mm. it when did that cycle of not feeling like you're good enough break and you then felt you were good enough in university at least Mm. I think passing I did literally pass first year did not get a good grade (laughs) I got the bare minimum that I needed to get into second year and unfortunately a lot of other people didn't it was very tough so I think once I got into my second year and it was kind of the ball started rolling with doing you know we had a bit more freedom of choosing our subject areas and being given more free reign to go out and find the stories we wanted to talk about I was like right I'm here for a reason I've got through the first test now I just need to make this my own To be honest, getting into university itself was a big question mark for me. I didn't think I would get the A-levels I needed to get in. So I kind of prepared myself for when I opened that envelope to be like, well, it's fine because I'm going to go traveling anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And then I got into uni and had some words with, you know, mum and dad of like, you know, you only get one shot at this in life sometimes. So if you don't go now, you may never go. So I think I've got a bad habit of constantly thinking I can't do it. And then when I eventually do the thing, I'm like, oh, well, I might as well give it a go now Mm. then I think that's something I'm still working on to be honest it's not something that's um come very easily Mm. so the listeners know the course was that intense like you said that half of your course Mm. mates had gone by the time you got to second year I think they'd either changed course or they dropped out entirely (laughs) so despite the fact that you said that your grade wasn't amazing are you still quite (laughs) proud of that looking back Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think obviously for everyone going to uni, you're moving away from home. But for me, it was an even bigger step that I had to get on a plane and move to somewhere I'd never lived before coming from Jersey. So it was two birds with one stone that I was flying the nest physically, like leaving home and starting this course that I didn't really have much of an idea of what to expect, to be honest. I didn't realise how intense it would be. I didn't realise how much the burden would fall on me, which sounds silly. But I feel like that transition between sixth form where someone does hold your hand and teach you how to get to the grade and get to the end of it compared to university in my first year anyway, where it was like, if you want to be here, you've got to make it work. Yeah, I am really proud of myself for persevering because I think like anyone, my first year was a massively turbulent time for my mental health and it's looking back I didn't realize how bad it was at the time but it's something that I pushed through got help for and talked to people about so Mm. yeah very proud of myself if you did struggle at any point did you access Mm. support or was there support in place from the university there was a lot of support in place I will say that uh, Bournemouth University Student Union is absolutely amazing I never actually utilized their services I don't know I think I leaned on my parents more than anything and friends to talk about how I was feeling I didn't feel the need to reach out for help at the time but looking back I think I should have I want to talk about how you got experience now because a key part Mm -hmm. of the journey that you want to discuss is access Ria. so like you said your hometown is Jersey and the Channel Islands and one of the targets you had to achieve to graduate was to secure six weeks of work experience and you had to do this during holidays. So it was either Christmas or summer or I don't know, Easter breaks or study periods. Mm-hmm. You had to go back to Jersey, though. And as a result, yeah. you had to turn down a six week internship at Marie Claire. So how difficult was that to accept? And, and what do you think that says about the industry more widely, do you think? That was really difficult because I felt like I was missing out and it wasn't my fault. So the internship, for example, I tried to negotiate a shorter amount of time and then they agreed to it. 
but sadly I had to keep going back and forth with them because the cost of me staying in London for a week when I have no family in London or friends that I could stay with was just too great it was an unpaid internship like a lot of them are and it was not feasible in any way shape or form even with all like you know even if I got a part-time job over summer I I couldn't have afforded to do it and it was a bit of a wake-up call to realize that if I wanted to stand out it wasn't just like the cost of these things but it was my time that I had to give up and I had to really come to terms with the fact that I might not get as further as other people because of my situation and I feel like it does say a lot about the industry because it's still a massive discussion now of the fact that sometimes it's who you know if you've got a friend at a a magazine or a newspaper or a family friend they might be able to get you a week's work experience but someone who doesn't have the luxury of that and has to work during their summer and Christmas holidays out of uni and doesn't have the time to go to London for a week and be unpaid living in a city it makes it very very difficult for a lot of people and it means that you don't have an industry that I feel is diverse enough because you don't have those voices and those students who want to kind of carve their way into an industry that's not really welcoming them in but it is getting better I will say that compared to how it was when I was at uni even there's a lot more grad schemes going on there's a lot more work experience and you know they reach out to different communities now but at the same time I just think so much more could be done to again hold that door open for those kids who think they can't get mm. in. a lot of it comes down to social class I think is the, is the important thing we should say Massively. Here. yeah you Definitely. said to me off air at one point you thought quite naturally I guess as any person would am I going to be employed mm-hmm. would you say that this was your most difficult moment Yeah, because it's all well and good doing the degree and doing the work experience. But at the end of the day, I was constantly looking at job boards and making sure that I kind of kept that in the back of my head that I'm like, you know, I had no desire to go and do a master's after my undergrad. I knew I wanted to get straight into work. But the reality of getting a journalism job straight away from graduating is so slim for so many people I did keep thinking that you know is this all going to be worth it am I even going to get a job after this and the pressure from that is really intense even with the supportive family I've got and they kept telling me to stop worrying so I can only imagine what it's like if you do have that added pressure of someone in the background asking if you're going to get a job Mm. as well let's talk about post-university and that graduate experience because your Mm. other friends were moving to big cities for graduate jobs like a lot of people kind of do when they finish university I'm very lucky in the sense that I live in northeast London I just moved back with my Mm. parents so I had that safety blanket and safety net I should say so I'm very Mm. grateful for that and I'm I'm very appreciative of what my situation was it doesn't make it any easy when you're (laughs) doesn't make it that much easier when you're (laughs) searching for jobs and getting hundreds of rejections but it does make it slightly easier you ended up working mm-hmm. in a coffee shop which is nothing to be ashamed of whatsoever after university to try and sort of make ends meet and get some money in at this point mm-hmm. were you worried about succeeding though yeah I definitely was because for me it felt like a step backwards going home to Jersey even if I'd have stayed in my uni town like a lot of people do I'd have felt I was at least waiting for my next big step to come but having to come home move back in with mum like you say, get a very kind of easy nine to five coffee shop job. I had a lot of time to overthink making coffees about where I was going to go next. And, you know, it also got to the point where people from my hometown were coming in every morning, getting a coffee from me and be like, oh, haven't you just come back from uni? And I was like, please don't have this conversation with me. I'm not ready for it today. It's 7am. So it brought up a lot of anxieties of how I looked at myself for sure and how I felt other people were perceiving me. So that was really difficult, I think, again, more than I realise when I look back at it now. Mm. But I am glad I did it because, like I said, it did give me that headspace to 
sit down and realize what I wanted to do and what I wanted to push forward for. So it was kind of like a blessing in disguise, I'd Mm. say. You spoke earlier there about not being or not having much opportunities in Jersey. But the one the one that you did find was at the BBC, which was where I used to work. Yeah. It was your local BBC, so it was BBC Jersey. Tell me how that yes. came about and, and what you learned there. So I will always be grateful for that job. BBC Jersey gave me a week's work experience the summer before my third year started. So I did a week there working across their radio and TV output, and I just loved it so much. I was like, oh. So this is what it's like to work in radio, because I won't lie, when I was at uni, I hated radio. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love my lecturer. Phil listens to my podcast now and says he's a big fan. He might just be being kind. But um, yeah, he will vouch that I was uh, less than enthusiastic to go out and record Vox Pops and bring them back. But yeah, my work experience at BBC Jersey was just so great. And I stayed in touch with some people there. And they let me know that they had some job openings just about a month or so after I graduated. So I just very simple procedure, applied for the job, got the interview and got it the next day. So very, very lucky. But again, that just goes to show that it's about who you know and where Mm. you put yourself out there. If I hadn't have done that work experience or kept in touch, I don't know if I'd have got the job. But very, very grateful for that job. It was the best place, in my opinion, to learn my footing as a young journalist. I was still so eager but so nervous and it really kind of gave me that confidence to prove to myself that I did know what I was doing and I did deserve to be in the field so yeah I absolutely loved it. Whilst you were there you did a piece Mm -hmm. with women who lived with endometriosis and we're going to discuss your own experience of this later on in the pod Ria but but Mm -hmm. on that specifically was that a really proud moment for you? That was, that was probably the biggest piece of journalism I have done to date maybe. It was something that I went to my editor about I went to her and I said you know I want more conversation on this topic I suffer from this you know this condition I never see anyone speaking about it in Jersey I know there are girls my age and women much older who are suffering from it I want to find out what's going on basically so again this is what comes from working in a small local team I got the freedom you know it got carved out in my kind of timetable I got roted in to go and find out if there was a story there there was I spoke to multiple kind of local women about the fact that they just didn't feel they had the emotional support, that there was, you know, limited kind of medical knowledge about it and how lost and alone they felt with it. And it was something that I will always be proud of because it brought a light to a very, very important issue. And I had, you know, girls my age and older kind of message me on social media after they saw this kind of TV and sorry, I should specify that it was a TV report and uh, a radio interview. And then I also went on and did um, kind of like a co-host show with my ex-colleague, Tim Hunter. He came up to me after I'd done the TV and radio bit. And he was like, you know, I have a younger audience on the show. I'd love to have you come on and co-host an entire evening talking about this and that was an amazing experience as well so again yeah it's something I I will always be really really proud of it was a massive moment for me because again it, it was another kind of feather in my cap of like you know you do deserve to be here you do know what you're doing and what you're doing is important so yeah it was completely invaluable experience to be able to be given complete free reign to do that and be trusted to do that as well. Before we talk about the podcast, the biggest challenge you said you faced in the industry, Ria, is rejection and dealing with that. Mm. So can you tell me about your experience of it and have you gotten better at dealing with it now? Yeah, I, uh, this might be kind of jumping ahead a bit here, but when I first moved to London last year, obviously peak pandemic time, <laughs> we went into lockdown. I was freelancing, but I was also applying for jobs 
outside of that and I had forgotten how difficult it is to just be told no all the time you know when you get three emails in one day for jobs that you know you're qualified for and they're saying that they're not even going to interview you it makes you wonder why you bother it's very very difficult it's very draining and I feel like as much as I was pre-warned about it again like I said my university lecturers were very open and honest and they told us a lot about the fact you know you will be knocked back 10 times before you get your one big shot most of the time but you have to keep persevering and know that it's not personal there's just a lot of you applying for the same thing but even so it gets really really hard to keep bigging yourself up and boosting your confidence constantly when all you're getting is no's or you're not even getting to that first stage and I feel like that's not spoken enough about when it comes to graduates but especially in journalism jobs because the sheer volume of applicants which they don't really tell you about, is overwhelming a lot of the time. And it can really affect your mental health. It can be a massive trigger for your anxieties. It can be a massive trigger for your self-esteem issues if if they're kind of like underlying as well. It really gets you down. And I feel like there needs to be more discourse between maybe the community in general, but just we all need to talk about the fact that dealing with rejection is actually a massively difficult thing for teenagers or young adults to deal with. And it's something that you're not really given the tools with. You're just like, well, you've got to deal with this emotion now here it is but you've also got to keep pushing through it and keep doing the same thing and know that you're gonna keep getting rejections before you get a yes so yeah it was um it was very difficult and I still struggle with it I don't know if it's healthy but I deal with it I'm I'm quite cold towards it now if I get a no I'm like well it's not meant to be then I won't chase it if it's a no unless I really really want it and then I might chase it let's talk about yours and George's baby now podcast no worries if Mm -hmm. not so Tell me first why you felt inspired to do it, how you and Georgia met and how you came up with its brilliantly mental health related name. Well, I'll start off with how Georgia and I met. So it's quite cliche and cheesy, but we literally met on our first day at university. We met at the bus stop going to our welcome lecture with our other best friend, uh, Rhiannon. We lived in the same uni accommodation. So we ended up spending nearly every day together from the get go. And we were just very very good friends and then turned that into best friends she was a massive support for me during uni we both struggled with similar things with anxieties and you know not feeling good enough in our fields as well and like the general pressures of uni life and our course so I don't know we always kind of we started listening to podcasts the three of us Georgia Rihanna and I and we kind of talk about it in the group chat we're very open with how we feel we share a lot and then last year I kind of approached G and I was like, do you want to make a podcast? And she was like, really? Me? I was like, yeah, just uh, it'll be a laugh. It's not for anything. It's you know, not making any money from it for a start. <laughs> but it was also that kind of thing that because Georgia always lived in the UK and I lived in Jersey, we went over a year without seeing each other sometimes when I was here or we couldn't travel. And then when lockdown happened, we all really felt that heavy pressure of like oh even if I wanted to get on a flight and go and see you I actually can't now and it was a way for us to kind of share how we were feeling bring up those topics that maybe we don't hear about in podcasts or generally online and in our words kind of bring our group chat to life and have an honest open space that's safe to talk about difficult things or funny things embarrassing things and almost use it as our own venting space really. The phrase anxiously ambitious is in the tagline of mm. the podcast, Ria. Can you unpack that <laughs> yes. term for listeners? How can you be anxiously ambitious? 
So it's something we always joked about that we were like, well, we've got all these big goals and we're talking about, you know, back in our uni days, we'd be like, I can't wait to be the editor of a like major <laughs> magazine or I can't, oh, been there. <laughs> like stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. Like we all have, have those like massive dreams when you're just starting out in your field and building up to your career. And we'd always say like, oh, isn't it funny that we're the most anxious people, but we've got these massive goals and ambitions that we don't tell anyone about. And it became something that we could, again, speak to each other about safely and like have these big dreams and be like, oh my God, am I really stupid for wanting to do this? Like, should I just go for it? You can be a very ambitious, driven person, but still be crippled with anxiety. And I feel like that's something we wanted to bring to light that like in this age of social media where everything is so polished and glossy, just because you see someone looking like they're being really successful and really happy doing it, nine times out of 10, they're not. So yeah, it was just a bit of a reality check more than anything. You aim the podcast predominantly at a female audience, although like you said, your lecturer, Phil, does listen to your podcast as well. So it's not just for, <laughs> not just for women. But what no. has the <laughs> feedback been from your female listeners? Have girls resonated with the way you talk about mental health or any other issues that your mm. conversation style or things like that? Yeah, we've had some really sweet messages of just, you know, I think my favourite one we got was someone messaged on the Instagram page and they just said, this really helped me zone out today. It was nice to hear you guys talking so openly about how you felt at uni. And that's all as, you know, going way back to kind of the start of when we were talking, being a storyteller, no matter what you're doing, whether it's talking about your own experiences or you're talking about a different topic, if you're telling a story and it's resonating with someone and it's making them feel safe or included that is all we wanted from this so yeah we've had some really nice feedback but again because it's more of like a passion project at the moment it's something we do in our spare time when we can find the time it's something we want to build on so we're hoping that even more people can listen and yeah just kind of feel like we've got their back and we're on the same page as them and how they feel isn't it's not just them they're not alone your last episode at time of recording, Ria, was about body mm. image and you discussed the history mm. behind the term and you also discussed the conversation around it for women. You said you had had body image issues since you were about 12 years old. So if you could, can you tell me about your relationship with your own body image and how it relates to your mental health? Yeah, this is something that I didn't really realise until I went to therapy. Body image has always been a very personal thing for me it's not something I spoke about a lot but university really brought that up for me as I was growing up and the kind of media I was consuming it was a lot of crap about (laughs) where and how you should lose weight and how you should look and I feel like subconsciously that definitely stemmed into how I look at myself it was just something that I had to learn to deal with university brought up a lot of demons for myself in terms of how I treat my body and how I look at my body and again that's something that I have spoken very openly about on the podcast it's something that I feel is really important to be open about because there's a lot of shame behind it there's a lot of shame of a not liking how you look or feeling a certain way about how your body looks or wanting to change it there's shame around that there's shame around the fact that if you have a history of disordered eating or you've got a history of not being kind to your body when you do start to want to be kind to it in a different way people sometimes feel like you're slipping back into you know old cycles and old habits which is difficult and just generally I think university brought up a lot of issues I hadn't been confronted with when I was getting ready to go out it was oh but the girls that I go out with don't dress like that so maybe I should start dressing like that or like oh I can't wear those clothes because it doesn't suit my body so maybe I should 
change my body so I can suit mm. them. Unfortunately, a lot of the time it comes down to feeling like you need to fit in and feeling like you need to change yourself in order to do that. So you're part of the pack and not left on the outside. So even listening to it back and editing it, that was really, really tough. G and I had a bit of a debrief after that episode because it was it brought up a lot of, to be honest, past trauma for both of us of like, shit, we've not spoken about that before together. We've spoken about it in passing, but not in detail. So it was really, really difficult. But again, I just think it reflects a lot of growth. The fact that we can sit and talk about it as adults and know that we're moving forward with it. Do you care about fitting in now? Oh, no. I like to think at 25, I finally mm. kind of it's dropped that. Age. But, um, it's not really the age where, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, ask me that last year, I definitely cared because, again, it comes back to that pack mentality. Sometimes if you feel like you don't fit in and you're on the outside, it's hard to see how you're ever going to get back in and be accepted and welcome again. Like you said, when girls your age were growing up, there's only two years between us. So I kind of experienced it mm. a lot when I saw girls growing up. The ideal body type was kind of Kate Moss a little bit before that, maybe like Claudia mm. Schiffer, people like that. Whereas now yeah. the dominant body type is the sort of slim, thick ideal. So it's mm. made famous by the Kardashians. I mean, it's almost gone full circle now where it's kind of gone from one extreme to the other, where it's now it's kind of like yeah. curves, big boobs, big bum, big legs. Yeah. Do you think we can reach a happy medium at some point? Or do you think this will kind of always be perpetually going on with young girls where it will be just be one body type idealised and another one than another one? I like to think optimistically that we could reach a happy medium where everyone stops talking about what they fucking look like all the time um, and stops focusing on the shape of their body and comparing that to their worth. But at the end of the day, you have an industry making money off those thoughts. You've got products, you've got celebrities, you've got personalities who are profiting off you thinking you need to look a certain way to be accepted so unfortunately I feel like it does come down to that it also massively comes down to how we talk to each other I am very very privileged to have a very strong group of friends a very very close circle and we've been friends for years Georgia and Rhiannon are included in that but we have a general rule of thumb that if one of us is starting to talk negatively about our body we're like no no you don't get to talk to yourself like that so if you don't have people around you catching you up on that language that you use when it comes to talking about how your body looks, I don't see how you can get out of that cycle, unfortunately. So I think, it again, it, it comes down to how we can all move forward collectively as like a society on a much wider level. But it also comes down to who you choose to be in your circle. If you're surrounding yourself with people who make you feel shit about your body or comment on your body and make it a direct correlation of your worth, then that's something that needs to be fixed first and foremost. And again, it comes down to how you speak to yourself, your own mental health and your own well-being, and just, you know, keep an eye on it because it's very easy to slip back into that old pattern of thinking that you need to look a certain way or your body needs to perform in a certain way to be worthy. So yeah, I think that's the biggest important thing there. Before we reflect, just building on that, what you just said, do you think that also plays mm -hmm. into the kind of influences that women follow if they're following women who are like influencers who are kind of posting quite edited pictures mm. or airbrush pictures mm. where they'll pass it off as not airbrush pictures. I think I watched a documentary that was <laughs> trying to make a make it a law that you had to put in like edited on a picture or something like oh, that. Yeah. yeah. So do you think mm -hmm. that's part of the conversation? And do you think also, you know, you talked about having a really great group of friends. I mean girls in school can be pretty vicious when it comes to kind of like yeah. picking on other yeah. people for body image do you think that's a conversation as well like trying to get girls to not be drawn into that or feel pressured to be drawn into that because I guess the sheep mentality is massive in school as well yeah 
It is. Going back to like the influencer thing, I feel like I'm very much of a thinking that yes, influencers have a part in that if they are heavily editing their body and passing it off as I work out five times a week and drink those <laughs> oh, natural as well. Like, yeah, that's why yeah, I'm doing yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Like, again, it goes back to there is a whole industry behind the ideal body type. So if those influencers are being part of that, that's something they've got to live with themselves. You don't have to follow them or support them. If you're choosing to follow them and support them, then that's going to infiltrate your own thinking and influence you. That's literally their job. (laughs) (laughs) So as much as I think it is a problem, I don't think they are to blame or to answer for it because they themselves have been manipulated to think they need to do that in order to be accepted. So it's very, they are, they're a massive product of it. So unfortunately it is a vicious circle, but I'm very much in support of, if you're seeing something on your social media page and it doesn't make you feel good about yourself, why are you looking at it? Why are you following it? Don't abuse these girls or give them, you know, don't troll them online for doing that because they're clearly not very happy in themselves. So like, what's the point of just feeding more negativity into Mm. the situation? Unfollow them. Don't support what they do if they are lying (laughs) to you in that way. But also, yeah, just have a bit of empathy for people because it's really fucking tough out there. And I don't envy those girls who feel like they have to heavily edit their bodies because I just the constant body dysmorphia must be really exhausting. Mm. So yeah, I really pity the situation in a lot of ways. And I hope that that can be something that changes in time. Yeah, it's getting to a point where like, I feel like all the filters and Snapchat filters and things you can put on different pictures, it's almost becoming like you're not the real version of yourself when you're posting things about yourself. So like, you'll see someone in real life, Mm. you're like, you don't look like that on a online. You're going to look at your phone, (laughs) you're going to sort of like getting like fake glasses out and going like that and just trying to figure out who they actually yeah. are it's it's it, I mean boys obviously do this as well but maybe not to an extreme degree but I feel a bit sad about what the kids are gonna think that this is normal behavior because mm. adults can't control their social yeah. media behavior how are we expecting gen z to and they evidently yeah. can't right now yeah. to be honest exactly I mean I um I have a cousin who's 10 years my junior and I've made it my mission from when she was very young to make sure that she has discourse surrounding her that's positive about body image that's positive about you know how she looks and how other people look and she's only 15 but she's of the tiktok mm. generation so she's got she's got kids her age who look my yeah, age it's very worrying on isn't her it? timeline yeah, yeah. <laughs> which again i'm never here to judge it i'm not one to judge that situation but i think it is really important to just be honest i think honesty is the best policy in any of these um scenarios so yeah i feel like like you said the use of filters to change your persona, I think, is the biggest worrying thing because you become an online personality. Yeah. And if you are different in real life, I can only imagine how detrimental that is to your mental mm. health long term. Let's reflect now on this journey, Ria. Mm-hmm. So first off, what has the podcast taught you about yourself? That I'm very loud and obnoxious sometimes <laughs> and that possibly far too open. I edit that podcast and sometimes I listen back and I'm like, did I actually just say that in front of a microphone? Georgia does kind of like pull me up sometimes like, you can't say that. <laughs> they can't know about that, Rhea. And I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah, it's def- I think it's taught me that as I've gotten older, I've got a lot more comfortable being open about my feelings, which I'm pleased with, but some things the internet just doesn't need to know, you know. But it's, it's taught me a lot about Georgia, about us as friends, about the journey we've both been on and what we've both learned. And it's it's shown me... This is going to sound really cheesy. It's possibly like listening back, show me the strength that we've both built together as friends and separately as women to come out of stressful times and difficult situations and be able to sit there and talk about it, I think shows a lot of strength. So, 
And as a second question, before we finish, what has mm-hmm. this wider journalism journey taught you about yourself? That perseverance is everything. And if you really want it, you will do the work. I feel like in the heat of the moment where you have a goal or an ambition, you don't realise how much you're sacrificing in order to get to that end goal, which can be detrimental sometimes, but it has proven to myself that if I want it, I can get it. It just depends how much I'm willing to sacrifice for it. I've learned along the lines that sacrificing your mental health and your social life is not worth it (laughs) to get to the big goal because then you get to the big goal and you're all on your own and you're absolutely knackered and it's like, oh, was that worth it? So the journalism journey has definitely taught me that perseverance is key if you want something, but also you can never replace the happy moments that you miss with family and friends in order to get a story in or meet a deadline. So it's all about balance. That's definitely what journalism has taught me is that balance is key in having that classic phrase like you can't have it all. You can have it all if you implement some boundaries and journalism has definitely taught me that. We've talked about your journalism journey, Ria, and a little bit about PR. Let's dive a bit deeper and talk about your own journey. So I ask all my special guests that come on the podcast for this question, walk me through early life in Jersey, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Ria we meet here? Oh, okay. So I was born and brought up in Jersey from very young. I had a very idyllic first few years of life, to be honest. My mum and dad rented like a bungalow on the beach. Oh, wow. So I had steps, like literally steps straight down onto the beach for my first two years of life. So the pictures really are like something out of a movie <laughs> from there. I did have a happy childhood. Like I wouldn't say it was traumatic it wasn't turbulent but my mum and dad got divorced at about seven years old so by that time we'd moved away from the beach house and into my then family home I was there from the age of two to I think we moved out when I was 18 yeah when I went to uni so lots of like mixed memories there I guess but yeah I think looking back my mental health issues predominantly started when I was about 11 Like any child of divorce will say, it has its ups and downs. I'm very lucky that my parents have come through the other side and are friends now. We just spent Christmas together. So that's something not a lot of people can say. But around the age of 11, things weren't great. A lot of communication issues between us as a family. My body image issues definitely started there. And yeah, I guess the anxiety looking back, you know, I always thought I was just a bit timid, but actually I was just a very anxious child. Um, I have to laugh about it because it's quite sad. If you can laugh about but, it, um... you own it. That's my <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I come from a family where mental health is spoken about very openly, which I'm very, very grateful for. So when I needed help, I could reach out for it. But it took me finally letting the wall down and being like, I'm not okay. Haven't been okay for a while. I need, I need some help. To get to that point you got some help and you went to therapy to help you through that period was it helpful mm. for you was it not and what tools did you learn in it so I am a massive massive advocate for therapy I personally believe that anyone even if you've had the most idyllic childhood and you've never ever had a bad thought in your life I feel like an hour of therapy will teach you more about yourself than anything else I started therapy when I was 16 17 so I did CBT I was in therapy for about a year I went every week for a year, Monday after school, went and sat in this tiny little office and spoke to this woman about everything that I had forgotten, repressed, not wanted to speak about. Sometimes I just spoke about my (laughs) ex-boyfriend. Like It was the most beneficial thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm very, very privileged to have been able to do that. 
it taught me a lot about where my triggers come from, why I think the way I do, why I perceive myself the way I do. I think the biggest thing for me I got from therapy was why and how I rely on other people to make me feel good about myself, which again, as a young teenager was the most valuable thing I learned because I learned not to put my value in others. I learned to be more self-confident, be more self-aware, know that someone's thought of me doesn't make it so. So yeah, therapy was a massive turning point for me. And I, to be quite blunt, don't think I would be here without it. I was very open with my mum and dad that I had some suicidal thoughts at a young age. My first one, I remember being maybe 12 or 13, walking home from school and genuinely just being like, I wonder if I stepped in front of that car. It was really that black and white, unfortunately. And then as a girl, when I started taking the pill and all those hormones kind of came into play as well, that's something that you don't get told about that your pill can make you suicidal. That was a fun trip to the doctor's office. Like, hi, I've been on my pill for two months. Why don't I want to be here anymore? This is horrible. And she, again, my GP was an absolute star and she is the one that recommended that I go to therapy. So yeah, it was a wave of experience in a very, very short amount of time during a very stressful time because that's when you're doing your exams and becoming a teenager and getting you know into your first relationships and friendships break down and you've got that going on at home it was very very intense Mm. you spoke there about this desire or reliance on other people to make you feel good and Mm. attachment issues is also something that you've experienced Ria and whether it's because of the Mm -hmm. divorce or not you can tell me but it was Mm. at age 16 which you said was your worst period for your mental health related to this mm-hmm. so it was a repressed mm. memory from your childhood which you was brought up during your therapy yeah. we're not going to go into what the details of it were here but mm-hmm. a similar event which happened to you as well kind of came out of the back of it can you just explain in as much or as little detail as possible mm. this period of your life and who the Rhea was we meet here so at that point I hadn't started therapy I had been speaking to my doctor And something happened that brought up a lot of feelings that I didn't know how to manage. So again, that's when I started therapy. And then it was during those sessions that something got brought up. It was just a very basic question. And it was like a bus had hit me. And I was like, oh, that's what that is. That's why I feel that way. And it was basically a sequence of events where something, it had repeated itself. And it made me realise that I was absolutely terrified of being left alone. I was scared of being left. I was scared of people leaving because there had been no conversation in my early life of, well, this is how it's going to be and that's how you're going to feel, but everyone's going to be here, so it's fine. It was a lot of kind of, because I was very young, the situation itself was kind of brushed under the carpet. It was forgotten about. No one was hurt. I just want to stress that (laughs) it wasn't anything serious. It wasn't anything particularly difficult. It was just traumatic for me. And it's something that I didn't realize was a trigger for my trauma until I went into therapy. And I realized where all this deep rooted feeling of being scared of being left came from. So sorry, I (laughs) that's a very roundabout way of explaining it it's not something that I want to go into detail with we've talked about it of course but the crux of it is is that the attachment fear of abandonment seeped into my early relationships as a young teenager it's something that I just remember being like hysterical a lot of the time a fear of being left and then that stemmed into well I'm not good enough and that's why people leave so it fueled a lot of my image of how I looked at myself 
and how I thought about myself. And it wasn't until I went to therapy and unpacked all of it that it was like, oh, it's not that I'm someone people want to leave. It's that I don't know how to deal with people leaving. So again, it was a big lesson in differentiating between those emotions and feelings and actions and knowing that at the end of the day, it comes down to how your brain is processing that information more so than the action itself, because it's all about action and reaction, isn't it, for me, with anxiety as well, that you go into fight or flight. So if you're an anxious person and you have attachment or abandonment issues that you either haven't addressed or have repressed and you get into a serious relationship and someone breaks up with you, you might react in a way that you never expected. You might go absolutely fly, fly off the rails. You might get overly emotional. You'll be terrified of them leaving, begging them not to leave. And then it's almost like you kind of come out your body and look at you doing that. And you're like, why am I acting that way? And again, it wasn't until I went to therapy that I realized why I acted that way. And it's because quite stereotypically, unfortunately, my dad left when I was seven. That was obviously difficult no matter how good their relationship was. And I say he left. My parents broke up. My dad left the family home physically. We maintained an amazing relationship and bond, and we still have that now. But there's still a big part of me that looked at, you know, a relationship breaking down. And that's that's what I knew. And then again, other events happened that kind of ran the risk of losing people again within the family dynamic. And it made it really difficult to process that feeling of, someone is leaving through choice and someone is leaving me because I'm not good enough. So yeah, that was very, very difficult. It's something that I still work on now. Again, relationships are tough for anyone regardless. And it's something that I feel like people don't talk about enough that those repressed childhood traumas that you might have, that you've not unpacked, that you've not spoken to even your mum and dad about, let alone your friends, can seep into your life in different ways, whether that's you know, saying in an unhealthy relationship because you'd rather be with someone than be mm. alone, saying unhealthy friendship because you're scared of not having a circle around you, or even staying in like a job that you hate because you just don't think you're good enough to be anywhere else. Like it can bleed into your life in a way that goes very unnoticed if you don't have the tools to see it. And I think that is the biggest danger. I really feel for people that are living with that way because I remember what it was like and I don't ever want to get to that space ever again. Under something more positive, but I imagine probably a bit challenging as well. You moved Mm. to London, as you said, during the pandemic last September in 2020. It's a pretty daunting Mm. thing for any non-London born person to do, I imagine, let alone during an unprecedented global pandemic. So Mm. let's talk positives first. What have they been Mm -hmm. for you and your mental health, Ria? Regaining some independence was absolutely the biggest win. My mum and dad will tell you that I was absolutely ready to fly the nest. It was a long time coming. It had been put off because of the pandemic starting and being able to move to London with friends around me, have my own space, my own life and not be not have to answer to anyone was definitely the right move at 23. I was there for my 24th birthday and I just, I've loved it ever since. I feel like even though at the time it became very isolated because of lockdown, the fact that I could do that in my own home with my friends and be able to rely on people in a new way and know that I could do it on my own was like a big win for me, I'd say. Conversely then, what have the negatives Mm -hmm. or challenges been? 
well, <laughs> London rent is <laughs> bloody expensive. <laughs> so yeah, having to move there with no job lined up and just a bank full of savings and some freelance gigs meant that I had some pressure on myself to kind of make it work. But also I live with two other people. So if I can't make the rent one month, I don't want them to have to worry about that. So that was a new pressure. And just, you know, flat sharing in general, I did it all through uni. I came home for two years and lived with my mum and now I've moved out again and I'm flat sharing. It comes with its difficulties, especially when you suffer with your mental health. There are days where I don't want to leave the house because I'm anxious or I'm feeling down or I've got a low mood or I just need to like be. Having to explain that Mm. to someone who isn't your mum, you know, my mum can read me like a book. I don't have to tell her why I'm feeling a certain way. Again, because I come from such (laughs) an open household. I'm used to not having to explain my feelings or my actions all the that's time. That's a unique position that's to different. be in, by the way. That's not the case for everyone. <laughs> I, no, it is. It's a, And that's what I mean is that it's such a blessing that I've grown up in a situation where if I'm having a down day or my mental health is bad, I can sit at the kitchen table and talk about it and I'm not judged for it. I'd never, ever felt judged for it. But when you move in with people you've never lived with before, it's not them judging you. It's almost like you start judging yourself because you're like, oh, I've got to explain to this person that sometimes I'm difficult <laughs> or sometimes I'm not like cheery and full of light on like a Wednesday afternoon. Sometimes I will shut, I need to shut myself away or take myself out on my own. I also think genuinely from being an only child that I value my alone time so much. I don't come from a massive family and living with other people who <laughs> are who are like maybe more sociable than me or want to spend more time together. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm going to be over here on my own because I need to be on my own right now. And yeah, having to answer those questions that you've maybe not been faced with before was a challenge. But genuinely, that's probably the only negative because my housemates are absolute angels and they've helped me through a lot this year. So very, very grateful for them. The final part of your journey I wanted to talk about, Ria, and it's one I was really keen to talk about when I got you on is a health condition you've already mentioned that you have called endometriosis so can yes. you tell me first of all what it is for the listeners who don't know because I didn't know until about six months ago mm-hmm. and how it affects okay. your physical mental and I guess your sexual health as well so endometriosis is a condition sorry I'm going to roll off some stats now <laughs> but um <laughs> it affects one in 10 women in the UK it takes on average about seven years to diagnose and it's essentially when the cells that grow in the lining of your womb grow outside your womb so imagine if you will you've got a womb um, you've got your fallopian tubes and your ovaries that like thick endometrial cells grow and they almost act like scar tissue on the outside of your organs so it's extremely painful. It can cause all kinds of complications with pregnancy, any type of fertility issue. It can cause IBS-like symptoms. It can be very painful when you have sex before, after, during. It causes irregular periods, very heavy, painful periods, which is why a lot of women don't get diagnosed because if from a young age you have difficult periods, if you want to call it that, a lot of the time your GP is not going to want to do some operation to check that's the reason for it they're just going to say you've got bad periods and top up your painkillers basically so that in itself is really difficult in terms of diagnosis but yeah for me the mental health side of things was difficult because I spent seven years telling my doctors something was wrong 
knowing something was wrong because it runs in my family and endometriosis a lot of the time can be hereditary so my mum suffered greatly with it and I watched her suffer with it from a young age so I knew all the signs and symptoms and I wasn't listened to I kept being told that I didn't have it or they didn't want to look into it because I was too young so it was very bittersweet when I did get diagnosed because it was like a really sad win (laughs) that I was right Mm. but I'd been left for that long thinking it was in my head there's no cure for it as far as I'm aware Mm. so how did that also feel when you were diagnosed I think so I was diagnosed in 2019 and it's so bittersweet to be like right okay all the pain wasn't in my head it is there for a reason it does mean something but there's nothing I can do about it apart from keep having these operations so just for like some background the way you're diagnosed with endometriosis is through laparoscopic surgery so it's keyhole surgery they go in they put a camera in to see what's there and if they can they remove any endometrium they find when they went to investigate me they found a large portion of endometriosis on my bowel that was connecting my bowel together so it was like stuck together but they weren't qualified to remove it so it got left there My doctor literally told me post-op when I went for my checkup that all my scars had healed, that was fine. How are you feeling? Yeah, I'm feeling better, but like, I'm still getting this. Like, well, now you just got to learn how to deal with it. That was it. There was no like, right, well, we'll keep doing checkups. We'll keep, you know, we could schedule an operation every year to see how this is progressing. There's none of that. It was right, carry on taking the pill. If you have any further problems, let us know. You're going to have your smear test early because you're clearly, you know, there could be some more complications, but... At the end of the day, you've now got to figure out how to manage your endometriosis. And that was it. (laughs) So knowing that there was no definite cure, there wasn't a tablet I could take, there wasn't a procedure I could do to get rid of it forever. It was just, okay, this is my life now that at 22 years old, I've now got to continually come back and check if this is getting worse, keep an eye on my symptoms, constantly wonder if that twinge or pain is my endometriosis or something else and learn to live with a condition that I am going to have for the rest of my life that was heavy that was a lot definitely and you've had no surgery since then to remove the endometriosis from your bowel I you have. have okay so this year actually probably since, since we last spoke <laughs> so um this is a whole other level yes I had more major surgery this year it was two months ago actually a week before my birthday I went in for histoscopy and laparoscopy and I was in the hands of an incredible surgeon and he removed all the endometrium that was on my bowel and anything else he found luckily nothing has progressed any worse but I am at a stage three I believe of endometriosis so it's something that I'm now managing in a new way. I've changed my diet to help my endometriosis. I exercise a lot more now. I try to keep a healthier lifestyle, but I'm also 25 and I like to have fun. So <laughs> there's some things that have to you know, fall by the wayside, unfortunately. But again, the major surgery part of it was difficult, especially this year with COVID. I had to go to hospital on my own. I didn't have anyone with me. It was the first time I'd ever spent the night in hospital. I was absolutely terrified. I don't do well with with anesthesia. So when I came to, I had a panic attack, which must have been quite funny to watch at the time for the nurses. But I just, I did not enjoy the experience. And then I had a month of recovery at home. And again, it was the first time I'd ever had that kind of procedure. And my housemates had to help me. They had to be my carers for about two weeks when it was at its worst. But the first, first week at home was possibly the worst thing I've ever, ever been through. It brought up a lot of like, 
trauma of that thought of like, am I really in pain or is it in my head? Because when you've been told for years that it can't be that bad, your pain can't be that bad. Surely you can walk. You get battered around with endometriosis diagnosis for so long that when you are actually in severe pain, you almost don't cut yourself any slack from it because you struggle to believe it's real. My last major surgery was that. It has touch wood given me a completely new lease of life. I was in a very, very bad way this summer and leading up to my surgery, just really awful mental state as well, because it was like a daily battle of like, right, how do I feel today? What can I what can I manage today? And then keeping a job and a social life on top of that and having to cancel plans because you can't get out of bed is just like not a life to live. So thankfully, I feel much better now. I'm very, very optimistic about my future because I know now that there are people and there are doctors out there that do take this seriously, that know that it's a massively detrimental condition to have at any age, but especially when you're young, that as great it is that they've caught it early and I've been diagnosed from a young age, it means that I've got a lot more years of struggling with it potentially ahead of me. Again, I just think there just needs to be more conversation about it, more honest conversation about it. It's not just having a bad period every month. It's struggling with your mental health. It's struggling to maintain relationships. It's the anxiety of leaving the house some days because you don't know if you're going to have an episode in the middle of the street or on the bus. It's a lot more than just a women's issue, definitely. So if it's more than just a women's issue, like you said, Mm. if there are men who are listening, and there's certainly a lot of men who listen in my audience, who are partners to women or who know their mum who's got it or who know a sister who's got it, what are the right things to do and say and support them? And what are the wrong things to do? The biggest thing for me, I think, is that they need to be as clued up as the person who has it. So there is nothing better you can do than to read as much as you can on the issue, know about the different experiences people have, the complications, the side effects, everything, because there's nothing worse when you've got endometriosis when you're like, for instance, I get episodes where I can't sleep or it wakes me up. So then the next day I'm like, oh, I barely slept last night, had a really bad endo app. And if people aren't aware of it, they go, really? Did you? And the constant questioning and doubt is what makes you not want to talk about it and what makes you feel like people aren't listening. So I'd say the biggest advice I can give is be as well-informed as you can be for your partner or whoever is in your life that has it. Know that not every day is the same with endo. So you might have one month where your episode is quite low key. It's not too bad. It just means that you need a day in bed to rest up with a hot water bottle. The next month could be searing pain, not able to walk, very, very serious. So it comes and goes in peaks and troughs. And I think that's the most important thing to realize is that no one endo episode looks the same. No one woman's endometriosis is the same. It's all different depending on how your lifestyle matches up with your condition, how you treat and manage it. So I think support is just the biggest thing. Like, listen, accept it, don't question it. Because like I said, there's nothing worse than telling someone how you feel and what your body is going through and them questioning if what you're saying is true. There are days where I can't lift things sometimes because it's bad and especially post-op. I was like, right, I can't lift that up. And some people were like, oh, come on. Yes, you can. Give it a go. I'm like, no, no, I'm telling you something. So I need you to hear it 
understand it and move with it so yeah I think I think it's really important just to get as much information as possible unfortunately that is all you can do you can only be a pillar of support because when you live with something that has no cure the woman in your life is going to constantly be hard on herself or in my experience anyway that those days where you have to cancel events or cancel social situations because there's just not any energy in you to get out of bed because you're having a bad day with it that has to be accepted it's not personal (laughs) it's not like we want to be laid up in pain so there just needs to be a lot of empathy there and a lot of sympathy but a lot of understanding make sure there's honest and open communication especially when it comes to your sexual health because it can be a massive hurdle to overcome in a couple or if you're dating someone new who has it because there are so many complications that could come with endometriosis in your sex life and I feel like again that's something that's so like taboo to talk about but it's really hard when you're like dating someone new or you're getting into a new relationship or even if you're in a long-term relationship and you've just been diagnosed to be able to talk openly about that like right I can't do that that hurts or you need to help me with this just be honest and open about it be susceptible to being told that you're wrong (laughs) as well and yeah just just listen that's my biggest advice listen sit and listen and be nice Let's reflect on your journey now, Ria. So first mm-hmm. of all, what has this journey taught you about yourself? Um, I think resilience comes into it again. I get told a lot by people that like, wow, you're so brave or you're so mm-hmm. strong. And it's like, well, sometimes there are times in life you have to be or you choose to be. And there are times where you had no choice, but you got through it anyway. So I feel like for me, my journey in general up until this point, you know being 25 now a lot has happened but I just know that I can I can get through anything if I want to and if I don't want to I can get help for it so yeah and as a final question before we move on if you could go back and talk to that 11 year old Ria who is struggling with her anxiety maybe the 16 year old Ria who is dealing with attachment issues or having suicidal thoughts or the Ria who was about to go into surgery for an endometriosis what would you say to her knowing what you do now um I think 11 year old me just needed to know that no matter what you say or what you're thinking no one's going to be too scared and they're going to want to help you I think that's the biggest thing that it sounds scary in your head and it might upset someone but it's better to tell them than to keep it to yourself 16 year old me you are good enough there are other reasons why you feel like you aren't and it's going to get better also not to put your worth in boys <laughs> I would say to 16 year old me there's so much more ahead of your life that you can prove to yourself that you are very worthy so yeah and definitely listen to your therapist at 16 and I guess pre-surgery me it does get better it does get easier and people are way more understanding than you'll ever know about a condition they don't understand <laughs> We've come to our final topic of conversation, Ria, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? Honestly, probably the best it's ever been, which is very, very good to say. Excellent. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised for the first time that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I'd say probably 13 years old is when I I made that connection, for sure. And was there a particular reason or did it just come naturally or was it a eureka moment? A little bit. I think it was was a mix of 
being more susceptible to adult conversations you get to that age where you understand more what the grown-ups in the room are saying and being more self-aware I think comes with that because when you start in my experience anyway when I started understanding why people were acting off how they were feeling I understood why my emotions were linked to my mental health rather than just a physical reaction to something so I feel like being able to label those feelings more than just happy and sad that was definitely the turning point can you tell me about the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health so who was it with what impact did it have and how do you look back on it did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or did it feel like something quite insignificant easy and normal to do Hmm. probably I can't remember if it was my mum or my dad (laughs) it was one of them it was my parents anyway probably my mum because when I was probably like the age of like 12, 12 or 13, we came up with a system in our house. It was just the two of us. And I remember either acting out or like probably being rude to her or something. And she had a policy where she was like, right, we're talking about this now. And I'd be like, no, I don't want to talk to you. Get out of my room. I don't want to talk. And she's like, no, we're going to sit down and you're going to tell me how you feel. And she would sit there, even if I sat in silence and she would make sure she sat there and she said, you can tell me anything. You just need to tell me what's going on. I remember telling her, like, I don't know how or why, but I just feel really, like, tense and angry. I can't put my finger on it. And we unpacked it together. And it was almost like my first experience of being anxious. I can't remember what it was about. It was probably about something with school or I'd had an argument with someone. And she just sat me down. She was like, it's okay to feel that way. She was like, but you can't take your feelings out on me because that's not fair. She was like, so we're going to come up with this now that if you are having a bad day, you tell me in the morning and we can help each other. And that's where the open dynamic came from in my household, that if you are having a bad day, you're not going to take it out on other people. You're not going to be angry. You're not going to be confused about how you feel. You're going to tell me that you're having a bad day and we can unpack it together. If you don't want to talk about it, that's fine. But if you do, then the door's always open kind of thing. What things in life do you find that trigger your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, could be a sound, a sensation, a book, a film, a social environment, Mm. or have you not figured all of them out yet? I haven't figured all of them out yet, but triggers are definitely the way people speak to me. So if I think someone is angry or upset with me, I kind of like retreat back and I'm like, oh no. And that comes down to the abandonment and the attachment issues, definitely. Certain places, I guess, make me feel sad sometimes, but that's not really mental health wise. That's kind of just like past experiences. But I don't have a lot of triggers, which I'm very lucky. And then on the other side, what tools and methods do you find that have improved your mental health? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't worked? So for me, journaling is my biggest thing that I picked up from therapy. I think of it like writing out a map for my brain. So if I'm having a tough day or I'm dealing with a feeling or a sensation like in my body that I'm like, something just feels off. I don't know what it is. I can't pinpoint what's happened. I tend to kind of journal in a way that I'm like talking to myself. Sounds so silly, but I'll be like, you know, this happened today and I'm feeling like this and such and such happened. And by the end of the page, I can read it back and go, oh, that's why I'm feeling anxious. That's why I'm feeling off today. That's where that emotions come from. That's what it's linked to. I use journaling a bit like to connect all the dots for myself because sometimes you can't, it's not easy to talk to someone about what you're feeling. It's sometimes easy to talk to yourself about it in a weird third person way. So journaling, 
I'd say I journal like at least every other day at the moment. And I feel like that's been the biggest lesson I've got from therapy is to like, you know, you don't have to let other people tell you how you feel. You can figure out how you feel yourself if you just do the work. So that's something that I really, really love. Meditation as well. I do when I'm extremely anxious. I'll meditate first thing in the morning for 10 minutes. I found that really beneficial. Exercise as well. It's a classic thing that go to the gym does actually help if you just go there for an hour, blast some music and let it all out. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I just need to sit down and that's okay. So I feel like I've uh, I found the balance of not feeling guilty for needing to rest. I think that's the one that I found that I, I try to push myself or keep myself busy too much. And that doesn't help your mental health. That just distracts you. What's the best book or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? It doesn't have to be specifically mental health related, but it does has had to have helped your mental health. Um, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to pinpoint a book. Can be fiction or non-fiction? The first book, fiction. Yeah, it's fiction. The first book I ever read that really struck a chord with me was To Kill a Mockingbird. And I pinpoint that as kind of, as you go back to the previous question, that previous point of like, knowing that it wasn't just feelings, it was mental health and emotions. I don't know why, but that book sticks out like a sore thumb to me. And another big one actually was a Sally Rooney book called Conversations with Friends, I believe it's called, because the main character has endometriosis. And it was the first time that I'd ever had a reflection of myself in a book and all those feelings and thoughts and sensations that she describes her character to have was like a massive wake up call to me. So, yeah, those are two books in my life that I feel like I tell everyone to read them because they help me so much. (laughs) And as a final question, Ria, and this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Um, I feel like as a young adult, so much of your time is spent in school around friends and teachers. And as much as there, I like to, well, I don't have been in secondary school for many years, but I like to think that there is more being done to support kids and their mental health at school, but I feel like there could always be more. Open discussion, open forums, creating safe spaces, making sure that kids can differentiate between having a bad day and being depressed. Mm. I feel like that That's is really important. That's my worry right now for kids. I feel like they're self-diagnosing a bit too much. Mm. The discourse has become oversaturated, mm. I feel. And in my kind of era, the Tumblr mm. era, anyway, when Tumblr Tumblr's was a thing. No, it hasn't. And it massively romanticized bad mental health. It was like this glorifies it, you know, sort of. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, oh, if you're in a turbulent relationship and you're both depressed, then you've got each other. Like that's not no, no that's not how it works. The pro Anna stuff so as well for... is a bit dark as well. Yeah. 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 So I feel like the online space, as much good as it's done, has, like you said, encouraged kids to self-diagnose. It's encouraged them to seek out something that might not be there, Mm. but in the same breath has also given them the tools to know that that's okay. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? But it is. So I think for me, moving forward in terms of mental health, especially for kids, is that you need to create a space at school, offline, where you talk face-to-face about how they're feeling, why they're feeling that way, what it means and what they can do to help. Because a lot of the time it's like, ah, that's depression. And then the kids sitting there like, well, what do I do about that? I can't afford to go to therapy. The waiting lists are too long. I don't like exercising. I can't talk to my mum and dad. You can't just put them in a corner with a label on. You have to give them the tools to be able to self 
help. And most kids are you anxious, know, about... but most kids won't have anxiety. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Some yes, of them will, exactly. but not all of them will. Yeah. And some of them will just be anxious because of school and exams and everything else. Yeah. But if you tell all of them they yeah. have anxiety, then they will think they have anxiety mm-hmm. and they'll all have anxiety when they get older yeah. and they won't be able to make a phone call to the GP as I'm finding out a lot of si- people's siblings can't do. So it's very yes, worrying. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It is. But yeah, I feel like in terms of adult mental health, I just feel like there needs to be a broader spectrum of how you speak about mental health and how you speak about being depressed and feeling anxious or having anxiety because it kind of presents itself in so many different ways that people my age think that if you're depressed, you can't get out of bed and you're not showering for a week. Or they think if you're anxious, you can't leave the house or you have a panic attack. The reality is that everyone experiences those mental health issues so differently and on such a broad spectrum that there needs to be more empathy generally, that if someone is struggling with that, don't question it. Just learn a bit more, try to understand it more. Don't tell them that they're overreacting. Don't tell them that they're wrong because... There's nothing worse than being in your own head about how you feel, finally getting the courage to say how you feel to someone and then going, really? Are you sure? Because then just the cycle just starts all over again. So yeah, I think there needs to be more face-to-face safe spaces. There needs to be more conversation, less saturation of blanket turning mm. for depression and anxiety because it's very, very serious if you are chronically depressed, if you're chronically anxious, and there needs to be a greater differentiation between how you diagnose those and where you need to go after that to make sure that you keep your life and keep your friends and your family close without pushing everyone away because no one understands. Rhea Wilsonholm, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we have come to the end of Rhea Wilson-Holmes' episode on the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Rhea for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for letting me check in with her. I'll put a link to where you can follow Rhea and also follow and listen to the No Worries If Not pod in the show notes. I will sign us off by saying, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. If you want to support us, please give us a five-star rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That will really help us with all of those precious algorithms and spread the word about Vent and the podcast. If you want to go even further, you can go to our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. Or if you don't want to do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. That link is on our link tree and across all of our social media channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay. Okay.